Hello, and welcome to A Dash of Cold Water Economics. This is for the week ending the 10th of January, and it's the first full working week of the year. And what a week it turned out to be. Uh, started out on the 3rd of January with the US taking out uh, the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, and we were subsequently invited to consider this the prospect uh, of starting the Third World War. Uh, presumably with Soleimani being uh, occupying the role of uh, the Archduke Ferdinand and Mr. Trump as uh, Gavrilo Princip. Well, uh, a week on, it really doesn't seem like um, the markets agreed with that uh, prognostication. Uh, if we look at what happened, the dollar is up about 0.3% um, against SDR currencies. Um, gold is up uh, just under 2%. Um, but on the other hand, Brent crude is down 1.6%. CRB is down about 1%. About 1%. Uh, and looking at bond markets, uh, US 10-year treasuries uh, slipped just seven basis points, and they're now at about 186 um, that's mainly the result of tips, 10-year tips being down five basis points, while the capital risk premium um, basically just dipped two basis points to, uh, it's now at 1.77. So if this is the beginning of the Third World War, um, one would certainly have expected a far more dramatic response from the markets. So I think, um, at least for the time being, unless everyone's got it very, very wrong, uh, it's the headlines that are wrong, not the markets. Now, if we look at the data for the first week of the year, uh, brace yourself because actually this was uh, a slightly positive uh, month, uh, week. And that slight positive gain, 18% uh, surprises versus 17% shocks, was enough to push my uh, global six-week signal into positive territory for the first time since mid-October. So in some ways, not a bad start to the year. Um, the results were solidly positive for Asia. They were solidly positive also for Europe. Um, but we had a third successive negative week for the US. So um, let's start thinking about what's happening in the US. This was the third week in a row that the US has generated more shocks than surprises. 18% um, shocks, 14% surprises. And this has actually pushed my six-week signal uh, into negative territory for the first time since mid-November. And in fact, I think there probably is beginning to be something to worry about. Um, what's doing the damage immediately is the weakness in the goods and industrial sector, which is struggling unsuccessfully uh, to deal with a buildup of inventories uh, which have basically been pushed around throughout the distribution system for the last few months, um, but basically without solving the problem. This is something I highlighted in last week's summary, um, but we got more data confirming it this week. There's an inventory dump going on, which is playing nicely into the trade balance, thank you very much, but it is hobbling the industrial economy. Worse, attempts to shift this inventory, to push it downstream from manufacturers to wholesalers to resellers, they're not going that well. This week, um, we learned that the November's trade deficit uh, narrowed by a further 3.9 billion to 43.1 billion, which is the best it's been since September 2017, principally because imports are flagging. 
They fell 1% month on month in November, having shrunk 1.7% in October, 1.6% in September. Meanwhile, um, exports continue to rise. Um, they were up 0.7%, uh, which is a break of 0.6 standard deviations above trend. So, you know, this slack, uh, absolute, you know, no need to import many more goods, thank you very much, uh, plays very well for the trade deficit. Um, but then when we look at what's happening in the manufacturing sector, uh, we can see what this glut is also doing. New orders in November were down 0.7%. Um, but while shipments were up 0.3%, inventories in the manufacturing sector also rose 0.3%, while backlogs, unfilled orders, fell 0.4%. In other words, the underlying ratios that drive short-term production and pricing schedules are not getting better. Manufacturers' inventory to shipment ratio is still stuck at 1.4 times, which is about as high as it's been since the mid-2016. Uh, uh, they're still carrying more inventories than their underlying business needs, and they will try and get rid of this inventory either by cutting production or cutting prices or cutting both. Similarly, the unfilled orders to shipment ratio has also fallen to 2.34 times again, which is roughly where it's been since mid-2017. Uh, in practice, what this means is that there's only limited opportunity to muscle down inventories by accelerating shipments to end clients. We also got data which explains why the wholesalers aren't going to help take this inventory. Uh, they cut inventory by 0.1% month on month in November, um, with sales rising 0.5%. Wholesale's inventory sales ratios did manage to come down a little bit to 1.345 times, but this ratio is still at cyclically high levels. Wholesalers are clearly going to feel they've got more stock to shift before they start buying enthusiastically again. Now, an inventory correction isn't necessarily going to generate a business cycle, even in the industrial sector, let alone for an entire economy, which is basically dominated by the services sector. Um, economists tend to kind of look at inventory cycle and say, yes, here it goes. Uh, if, if you're a service sector economy like the US, that's not necessarily the case. Nevertheless, what worries me is that this week also gave us evidence that the stress that this inventory dump is taking or is generating is beginning to be passed on to related sectors. And I point to two things. Firstly, um, there's a, a freight transport services index, which I follow. I don't think many people follow this. Uh, and it managed a rise of only 0.1% month on month in December, which left it 1.2% lower than it was in December 2018. And essentially, this uh, index has just been tracking basically sideways since November, since September 2018. So, you know, we're into sort of 15 months worth of, of, of flat um, freight transport index in, in, in the US. More worryingly, still, that flat freight economy is also hitting heavy truck sales. Now, December's heavy truck sales bounced slightly after November for a shocking fall in November, but this still keeps sales sharply lower than they have been at the peak levels that they sustained throughout most of 2019. This, I think, is genuinely worrying because in each of the last three recessions, 81, 90, 
actually that's four recessions, 81, 90, 2000, and uh, 2008. In each case, um, those recessions have been preceded by between 12 and 18 months by a sharp fall in heavy truck sales. And if I look at the chart now, it's all beginning to look rather like that. Unless we see a recovery in heavy truck sales over the next few months, then I think we've got to start to be on recession watch for early to mid uh, 2021. I've not been on recession watch, as everyone knows, as I expect you know. I've really resisted being on recession watch for the last three or four years, and everyone's been calling it. Right now, I think we've got to watch this freight, um, tra- freight numbers. We've got to watch heavy truck sales. If they don't recover, it's legitimate to start worrying. Okay, let's hop over to Asia now. You know, Asia's data has basically had a sustained drubbing since really the beginning of the second half of last year. Uh, It's just been grim. Um, However, this week, uh, guess what? We had um, a genuinely positive result, 23% surprises versus 10% shocks. And although my six-week signal for Asia is still negative, it's the mildest so that it's been since the beginning of October. What's more, unlike in the last few weeks where the positive data from Asia has tended to be concentrated in either you know Japan or Korea or China or wherever, this week the good news was basically spread all around the region. China, Japan, all the rest of Asia produces more surprises than shocks. What I want to concentrate on, however is the trade picture, because I think there's uh, an important point here which I keep making and I'm going to make yet again. Uh, This week, uh, Japan reported its 20-day trade data, um, and Japan also uh, reported um, its trade data for December. Uh, And incidentally, that was really worth watching because uh, we had a 13.9% rise in imports, which was driven by a 38% jump in core electrical electrical imports clearly um, stocking up for further production. So, you know, genuinely good news from there. However, now we've got Japan's 20 days, we've got Taiwan's, we've got China's, we've got South Korea's, all this export data is, is in. We're now in a position to assess the whole of Northeast Asia's export performance in December. And in dollar terms, wasn't too bad. Um, it was up 3.3% in dollar terms. Uh, And the monthly movement was, well, it was 0.1 standard deviation above historical seasonal trend, um, which really continues the underlying trend. The six-month deflection against five-year trends is absolutely negligible. Sadly, however, uh, in this case, the trend is not your friend. Um, Exports fell 2.4% in 2019. And if they just continue to conform to five-year seasonalized trends, they're going to fall another 1% in 2020. Now, I make no apology for repeating that despite the numbers of pixels burned lamenting the outbreak of Trump's trade wars, it has left no scars, none, none, on Northeast Asia's export momentum. In fact, the numbers make me go further Despite everything that's been written, 2019 was a year in which the clear winner in Northeast Asia's export game was, guess who? China. 
During 2019, in dollar terms, yes, China's exports were down 0.1% year on year, but Taiwan's were down 1.9%, Japan's were down 4.2%, and South Korea's were down by 10.1%. In other words, this relative success for China boosted its total share of Northeast Asian exports by 1.4 percentage points to 61.2%, which is a historic record. The big loser was South Korea, market share down 1.1 points to 13.3%, uh, and Taiwan's was uh, pretty much unchanged. Now, the moral for this is absolutely clear. The real trade war that's going on isn't the one that's dominating the headlines, rather, as we're not getting World War Three, it's not the one that's dominating the headlines, rather it is the one that is being waged with great ferocity, well out of sight, uh, in the tangled barbed wire of non-tariff barriers. Uh, and they continue, the, the, these barriers continue to be raised. Uh, the largest uh, four economies, that's the US, EU, Japan, China, added a further 37 non-tariff barriers in December, taking their total that they've got in force right now up to 13,231, which is up 5.2% year on year, which is a heck of a lot more than um, imports have risen. In other words, your, the barriers to trade relative to the underlying trade flows continue to intensify and intensify and intensify. Now, I can hear you say, well, look, um, I hear you that uh, it's the trend, that this, it's a problem, but let's face it, the implications of Trump's trade threats against China haven't been just felt in China, they've also been felt in places that rely on China's Chinese demand, uh, and in particular, for example, how can I rule out that problems in Germany um, aren't a reflection of the trade war? And I think that um, at this point, we've got to just realize that, the, that Occam's razor doesn't always work, that the simplest uh, single issue answer isn't necessarily the right answer. Uh, as we said, it's just impossible um, that the problem is China's trade war, because as I say, China has outperformed this year. So what's happening with Germany? Well, um, it's quite likely that Germany's export performance and its industrial performance has been compromised by weak Chinese demand. But to attribute that simply or primarily to Trump's trade war simply cannot be right. Other things must be at play. And I don't think they're difficult to spot. Uh, China's economy is weak owing to structural hurdles it's finding hard to overcome, and particularly, obviously, the legacy of over-leverage. Uh, and to that, I'd also add, as I did last week, the fact that as China becomes um, more uh, authoritarian, um, then it becomes perhaps a less attractive place for people to do business with. Um, but that's China isn't the only uh, problem for Germany. Um, Germany's export exposure to the rest of the Eurozone is obviously going to be a problem. And thirdly, it's difficult not to identify Germany's concentration uh, in the wrong part of the auto market. Um, the U UK is a large, um, is a large 
uh, customer for, 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 for Germany. And its concentration in the, on the diesel side has been absolutely catastrophic for, for, for them, I think. Um, if we, in, certainly in, in the British market, if we look in 2016, before the VW scandal, diesels were taking up uh, nearly 50% of the UK um, car market. They're now down to about 22, 23%, and they just keep falling and falling and falling. It is impossible, I think, to ignore this uh, as a factor in Germany's overall weakness. So let's not just think, okay, Germany's got problems because China's got problems, and China's got problems because of Trump. Germany's got problems because China's got problems, but China's got problems because China's got problems. And Germany's got problems because also the Eurozone ex-Germany's got problems, and German industry itself also has problems. And that's, uh, you know, before we start thinking about the situation of return on capital in Germany, uh, the concentration of construction spending in German investment, and uh, the fall in Kalecki profits that we've seen in, in, in Germany. Germany has its own problems. It's not all down to China, and it's not all down to Trump. Anyway, looks, let's look at uh, Europe's data for the week. Uh, it was a, had a positive start for the year, 22% surprises versus 17% shocks. Uh, its six-week signal is firmly entrenched in positive territory. And in fact, it's now got the most positive six-week signal of all the regions. That said, I'm finding it very hard to construct any sort of coherent narrative about what and why, um, because the data basically looks to be all over the place. And it, it's, it's basically constructing a coherent economic picture from, from it is uh, pretty much a Rorschach test. You'll, it will, you will bend the data to fit your own preconceptions. Um, for example, just consider this week's data, again, from Germany. Retail sales uh, surprised us up 2.1%, which were more than compensated for October's 1.3% fall. Good. Similarly good, um, Centix Investor Confidence Index of Germany, um, their expectations were up 7.3 points to 7.8, which is the highest since January 2018. Good. Uh, however, uh, factory orders were down 1.3%, um, and that was despite a 1.6% rise in domestic orders because export orders were down 3.1%. Similarly, November's trade numbers were terrible. Exports down 2.3%, imports down 0.4%, uh, and the trade surplus narrowing 3 billion to 18.3 billion euros. Um, and to round it off, November's industrial production rebounded 1.1% month on month, which basically just offset the 1% fall in October. What do you make of uh, data like that? It's, uh, it's scratchy, it's... Um, basically all over the place, I can't really um, construct a, um, I can't really con construct a, a narrative that I think is convincing in terms of where we are, uh, in terms of the business cycle, or whether we're getting any signals that the business cycle is likely to inflect up or down. So in those circumstances, I go back to a piece I wrote uh, last year called uh, The Vulnerability of Germany's Escape from Recession. <laughs> Uh, which you can find uh, on my blog blog post. And incidentally, um, when we're on about blog posts, uh, you'll probably know that by now that I've transferring, I'm transferring as much as I can uh, to Blockstack uh, Technologies, 
Uh, I like the privacy. I like the implications to take control of your online identity and uh, absent yourself from, from the attention economy. Um, I keep my uh, blog now on um, a Blockstack app called Sigil, uh, and I encourage you all to look at it, and I encourage you all to get yourself a Blockstack identity. Just a quick plug there. Now, just sort of cutting away from the, uh, from the uh, data uh, fountain, if you like, um, the thing that was sort of beginning to intrigue me and um, has left me uh, with questions to answer um, this week was about capital markets. Um, and the question I want to ask is, what function are capital markets actually now fulfilling in 2020? Uh, historically, the question has been, you know, answered itself. Public capital markets are there to raise capital for companies, essentially by mobilizing and allocating the saving surplus of the household sector in a way which allowed uh, the free market to discover value in enterprises which commercial banking systems were in no position to do. Uh, that's how we think about them. That's how we justify them. And that's what they're no longer doing certainly not in developed uh, economies anyway. For example, if we look at the US, there has not been a single year this century so far when equity markets were net raisers of capital, including bank capital. And if you look at the year to September 2019, and you look at the Fed data, for capital markets, it shows that markets, public markets retired a net $542 billion worth of public equities. Nor is this a freak result. Since 2017, the average annual net equity retirement from public markets has been $410 billion a year. From the beginning of 2007 to September 2019, the amount of public equity retired from U.S. capital markets is $5.2 trillion. This is a startling thing. It's impossible to look at these numbers and say, okay, you know, these are capital-raising markets. They're not. They're capital-redemption markets right now. And we know buybacks are the main culprit. Um, buybacks um, um, in the 12 months to September 2019 came to just under $500 billion. Since 2007, total buybacks are $4.57 trillion. Extraordinary. But even if you exclude buybacks, U.S. equity markets are whatever you call the opposite of capital-raising markets. Even ex-buybacks, the 12 months to September, saw a net retirement of $43.4 billion of equity. And then since 2007, total public equity retired, excluding buybacks, comes to $630 billion. These Equity markets, the topic, uh, the, the, the S&P, the Dow Jones, the Wilshire, call it what you will, however you measure it, these guys are no longer raising equity from the household sector to put into the corporate sector. They are essentially redeeming capital, essentially, from the household sector. It's an extraordinary development. Um, and I, I, I wish I could tell you that this was happening only uh, in the U.S. It's not uh, you know, over the last few years, the sustained efforts to recapitalize 
the Eurozone banking system has actually boosted uh, equity issuance considerably. Um, And in fact, if we look at uh, ECB data, since the beginning of 2007, Eurozone equity markets have raised a net, the net 789 billion euros, of which um, 322 was for basically banks, uh, another 193 for non-monetary financial institutions, insurance, pensions. Meanwhile, capital raised by non-financial companies was actually pretty low, only 274 billion since uh, 2007. However, even this modest deal flow is beginning to falter. And if you look at the 12 months to September, capital was withdrawn from US equity markets. Total withdrawal came to 7.3 billion. Non-financial companies withdrew 5.1 billion um, in, in the 12 months. And only twice before in recent history has the Eurozone capital markets actually seen net capital redemption. Uh, and those two other times were in 2008, 2009, and in 2013. So it's really quite, um, quite uh, worrying, um, quite, quite, quite worrying precedence. Now, this change from being capital raising markets to being capital redemption markets poses a whole series of questions which I don't really know how to answer. What are these markets for? If they're capital redemption markets, does pricing reflect primarily uh, the expectation of the degree of redemption? And if so, what, if anything, is the point of a dividend? Or why research business performance to find out what dividends and expected cash flow will be? If interest rates are expected to be near zero or even negative, why pay dividends at all? And if dividends are not going to be paid, what kind of difference is there going to be between equity offerings and crypto offerings? Is one more rational than the other? Finally, is the switch of the function from capital raising to capital redemption merely a function of the regulatory environment? Is it the intention of the regulatory environment to raise the cost of public listing so high actually to close down public markets? It's quite a thought. Now, the truth is I don't have answers to these questions. But what I am doing is I'm adding capital markets, inverted commas, to the lengthening list of commonly used economic and financial expressions which I think have lost their meaning. Um, if you have some thoughts on this, I'd be very happy to hear them. Uh, you know you can always email me at mtaylor at coldwatereconomics.co.uk or mtaylor at coldwatereconomics.com. Meanwhile, if you've uh, found this uh, podcast interesting, uh, I'm very glad. Uh, tell people about it. Um, Uh, I don't believe there's any way of uh, recommending it to anyone apart from verbally recommending it. But if you've enjoyed it, uh, all feedback is gratefully received. Thanks a lot. Have a good week.